Welcome to the Kindred Church Podcast, where we talk about God, faith, and real life. This is Daniel Childs. I'm the host of the podcast and the pastor of Kindred Church. To learn more about how to connect with our community, check out our website at www.kindrednc.church. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're glad you've tuned in for today's episode. Now, let's talk about God. Good morning, Kindred. It's such a delight to be joining you this morning for this road trip series. I've been doing a lot of traveling this summer, and now I'm finally home and hunkering down for the start of the school year, and I'm really looking forward to the youth ministry starting back up. As we prepare our hearts to receive the message today, will you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Let us pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations on all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. What's a road trip like without something major going wrong? As a youth minister, I've got my fair share of road trip low points to share. It's hard to pick just one. There's the time my family went to Disney and stayed in a roach-infested motel with wet carpet. That was fun. Uh, Then there's the time that one of my youth leaders backed a 15-passenger van full of kids into a ditch. One tire was dangling in the air and the suspension was caught on a rock so that everyone could get out quickly and safely. Luckily, the tow truck came to the rescue. And, And don't worry, that was at my first church, so you know bygones. But I I think my favorite road trip gone wrong story happened here at University United Methodist Church. I was a chaperone for the youth choir tour to sing Jesus Christ Superstar up the East Coast. We were going to New York City and our sights were set on the stars. We traveled with over 30 teenagers in a Greyhound bus, staying in different locations every night. On one stop, there weren't enough host homes for everybody, so a majority of us stayed at a rather ratty hotel. While the upperclassmen uh, sent us pictures of the luxurious homes they were staying in, I was with the rest of the group in a bright orange hotel with the strong odor of cigarettes lingering on the carpet and the bedding. I had already negotiated a few concerns like someone finding a, you know, a used Band-Aid in her sheets when I settled myself down for bed. That's when I got a text message from none other than Justin Coleman, the senior pastor of the church I work for, saying that I might need to check on the middle school boys' room. I knocked on their door and all four of the middle school boys were clustered there, freaking out, their backs against the wall. It's in the bathroom, they told me. So I I went in the bathroom expecting to find some sort of horrible creature. But what I found caused me serious concern about the state of cleaning that happens in between guest visits at this particular establishment. For there, lying in the middle of the bathtub, was a pair of women's underwear just stretching out, having a good old time. I laughed out loud at how upset this made the middle school boys, but I wasn't about to touch it with my own fingers. So I used a clothes hanger 
to move the affronting material into the trash bin. It seemed like everyone had stories to tell about that night in that hotel. It may have been a low point for our trip to New York City, but it made for a great memory and a story that we learned from. For example, now we have a parent plan all of our hotel stays. As we continue our journey through this road trip series, today we're going to look at the low point in the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And when I say low point, I mean the most ultimate of road trip blunders. Yes, my friends, today we're going to explore all that went wrong with the golden calf incident. Just to catch you up, Moses has impressed Egypt with 10 plagues, and Egypt has decided to abolish Israelite slavery. Israel then plundered the Egyptians of their gold and ran for their lives, only to have Egypt change their minds about abolition and chase them into the desert. God surprised everyone with another miracle, parted the Red Sea and let Israel pass through while drowning their Egyptian oppressors. Okay, are you with me? You're all caught up? Now, Moses has secured the spot as Israel's leader. They've left their land of oppression, but have only hopes and dreams for what lies before them. But Moses has been calling the shots so far, and he claims to represent the voice and power of God. So everyone's just waiting for the next part of the road trip, right? Well, that's when Moses goes up Mount Sinai and spends 40 days away from the people. Now, six weeks is a really long time, and the people grew restless. What on earth was Moses doing up there? He didn't say how long he'd take, but this feels like forever. I mean, how long does it really take to get directions from the Lord? Quite fed up, the people assumed that Moses either wasn't coming back or he wasn't much of a leader to begin with. So they asked his brother Aaron, to take over. Make us gods who can lead us, they cried. In other words, give us something we can see that we can trust will take us where we need to go. It's interesting that they didn't just ask Aaron to lead them. They asked Aaron to make them gods. This means that they are longing for someone to trust that is more powerful and permanent than the leadership of a person. They are longing for a God who will be there for them and take them where they need to go. It's not so strange a thing to want, especially when you've been waiting for such a long time already. So Aaron collected all the gold that the Israelites had plundered from the Egyptians and melted it into a golden statue of a baby cow. The statue would remind the Hebrew people of the bull statues of the Egyptian god Apis and of the Canaanite god El, whose name was only slightly different from Israel's god, who was often called Elohim. Once the bull calf was completed, the people proclaimed, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, that's a strange thing to proclaim. After all, 
they had witnessed the statue being made from beginning to end. They had witnessed the power of Yahweh through the prophet Moses. They had witnessed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So why did they need this golden statue? Why did they instantly believe it was now the God who set them free from Egyptian slavery? As if offering a slight corrective, Aaron, the high priest, built an altar in front of the statue and said, tomorrow will be a festival to Yahweh. The next day, the people celebrated and brought burnt offerings to the altar in front of the statue. To Aaron, the golden calf was the image of God. So what's so bad about the Israelites worshiping the golden calf if they believed it was a symbol of their God, Yahweh? Let's backtrack a little. Right before Moses went up to Mount Sinai, the Lord spoke to him in a great thundercloud so that all of Israel could hear. In this conversation, God listed out the Ten Commandments to which Moses would later get on uh, two rock tablets while he was up on the mountain. The voice of the Lord was so intense that the people begged Moses to go up the mountain and talk to God privately away from them. Now, the first few commandments uh, had everything to do with what it means to honor God. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself. No form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name that way. You're probably at least a little bit familiar with some of these, but God had made it clear that to be in a covenant relationship with God, Israel would have to worship God the way God wanted to be worshiped. They couldn't make up their own rules. And even though they had heard this straight from God's mouth in a terrible thundercloud, here they were weeks later worshiping a golden calf. I think if we're going to understand why this was such a bad thing, it will help for us to take some time to understand what an idol was in ancient Israel's day. You'll recall they were slaves in Egypt, and Egypt was ruled by a pharaoh. It was common for pharaohs, and really most kings in the ancient Near East, to refer to themselves as the image of God. The king was the image of God and that he had the unique authority to declare what was good and evil. He had a power on earth equal to that of a God above. Israel was supposed to be unique among the nations and that they were not to worship their kings as gods. Israel was also to be unique among nations and that they were not to create images of God because the creator of the universe could not be represented by any part of that creation. But there's another perhaps deeper reason that God didn't want Israel to worship idols or images of God. 
People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of God's self. That's right. God has already made images of God. If you go back to page one of the Bible, God is the first person you meet. God alone declares what is good. God alone has all authority over creation. And when God makes humanity, God makes us in the image of God. And God says to all humanity, subdue the earth and rule it. You see, God does not give this job just to special kings, but to every single human on the planet. Every single person bears the image of God to use our energy and creativity to partner with God in shaping a healthy planet Earth. In the Genesis story, the first image bearers, Adam and Eve, are faced with a choice to live by God's definition of good and evil or to define good and evil for themselves. This is the type of story that resonates across time and space in that the choice of Adam and Eve becomes the choice that all of us must face in our lifetimes. History has proven that sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. But even when we get it wrong, the image of God is not erased in us. We are once and for always made in the image of God. When we choose to define good and evil on our own terms, it's like we become an out-of-tune piano, unable to recalibrate our strings on our own. We need a master tuner to come in and set us straight again so that we can make the music we were created for. This predisposition to choose our own definitions of good and evil is, is where Christians tend to use the language of idolatry. It's very unlikely that you have statues in your house that you worship as gods. But the impulse to make our own golden calves never left the human spirit. Christians tend to associate anything that we elevate to God's status in our lives. These are the idols that we need to worry about. Uh, Tim Keller once said, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. It's common for us to pursue wealth to the point of idolatry, to the point of finding our identity in the creature comforts and status that comes from belonging to a certain economical status. We may place such a high value on entertainment that it becomes an idol in our lives, seeking to be entertained more than we value devoting time to our spiritual growth or giving back to the community. Sex or even romance can become an idol when we elevate it beyond the intimacy and joy that God meant for two people to share and, and turn it into a, a commodity or a product for selfish gain or when we place our identity in whether we have love or not. For some of us, comfort may have become an idol when it becomes the main pursuit of life. In the last few years, perhaps our country has become so divided because we have made an idol of being right. 
We are so determined to be on the right side of history or to have the right beliefs that we write off those people who don't see the world the way we do. For many years, I worshiped the idol of success in ministry. I read books like From Good to Great and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Churches. I studied how the megachurches did it and wanted to base my ministry on the proven practices of successful churches out there. Now, wanting to do your best is not a bad thing. But what I mean about making success my idol is that I was wearing myself out, burning the candle at both ends, giving more than I actually had to give to make my ministry the best in town. My motives may have started out to glorify God, but in time I wrapped my own reputation up so much with the work that I produced that I failed to see my self-worth apart from the positive results of overworking. I believed that people wouldn't love me or want me in their church if my ministry wasn't successful. Worse yet, I believed that God wouldn't want me in ministry if I wasn't constantly creating amazing experiences that drew teenagers in uh, like the Pied Piper. I became a workaholic, spending all of my free time thinking up ways to improve my work. I would wake up at three in the morning with ideas or anxieties about what I had to do the next day. And worst of all, I became resentful and angry and disillusioned with the church. I came to believe that everything would fail unless I was somehow involved in it. In pursuing success above all else, I became my own God. The Golden Calf Incident was seen as the low point of Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and they suffered death and plagues as a result of their transgression. In pursuing success as my idol, I hit a low point in my own ministry. The pressure I had put on myself to succeed had led to so much anxiety that I was becoming physically unwell. I developed a migraine-based vertigo that literally stopped me in my tracks and caused me to reevaluate everything. My doctor said that I needed to make significant lifestyle changes if I was going to get better. I needed to start over, and I needed God to smash my idols. Today I still recognize that impulse to make success in ministry my idol, but I have learned that what matters most is putting God at the center of everything, trusting that when I follow God fully, I will bear good fruit for others and for myself. This isn't some sort of magical development. I've had to really root myself back into Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 refers to Christ as the image of the invisible God. So while you and I are made in the image of God, Jesus is the image of God. We look to him and see the perfect representation of God's love and desire for creation. The life and teachings of Jesus reveal to us the fullness of God's love for all humanity, for the people we love, for the marginalized, for the self-righteous, and even for our enemies. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection shows us that despite all the ways we have blown it, 
God remains for us. In Jesus, we have the ability to be reunited to God's calibration. The image of God's uh, love restored in us as we connect our lives to the truest source of that image, Jesus. If we have questions about whether we've taken one of God's good gifts and turned it into an idol, we should spend time getting to know Jesus and compare his agenda to our own. The more time we spend with Christ through prayer and worship, as well as through loving our neighbors in the real world, the more we are transformed to represent that perfect image of God. Idols may cause us temporary peace. They may bring you a sense of control over your life. They may give you the sense that you are safe, that you are loved, or that you are worthy. But idols are inherently temporary. By their very nature, they will disappoint you. To create an idol is not only an insult to God, it is an insult to yourself because you are placing your identity and value on something impermanent that will fail you. God has already made you in God's image and God has called you good. Look into yourself and find that you are already beloved. You are already worthy. And if you struggle to believe it, trust that Christ died to prove God's love for you has always been there. Letting go of your idols, it's going to be difficult. It may be a low point on the road of your life. Not everything is going to change. Uh, it, not all change is easy. Not all golden calves are easily melted. This is where connection to your church community is so important. When I was busy smashing my idol of success, I had to lean heavily on my best friends and family who all held me up in the faith. We often think of the word accountability as this sort of condescending shaming for breaking the rules. But in true Christian friendship, accountability means having friends who fiercely remind you that you are already made in the image of God. It means having friends that aren't afraid to ask you if you are clinging on to anything that keeps you from being transformed into the full image of Christ. Sometimes you get this in your small groups. Sometimes you get this from your pastor and teachers. Often you get it through friendships with siblings in Christ. With school starting back this month, a lot of us will be getting back into regular routines. It's a great time to evaluate what things may have become idols in your own life. It's a great time to dig deeper into your church community by joining a small group or, or planning to get coffee regularly with someone who can help you dig deeper into your own faith. Beloved, you are made in the image of God. God cannot love you any more or any less then you are already loved. Salvation is, is waking up to the realization that God has already called you worthy. It's trusting in the goodness of how you were made. Christ lived to proclaim this message. Christ died to prove it. No idol can hold a candle to the love God has for you. I hope you'll believe that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
you, consider sharing it with a friend who might also enjoy it. Uh, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast here and give us a rating that helps us connect with more listeners. This free resource and all of Kindred's ministries are supported by the generosity of people like you. Your giving changes lives, and it helps us to share and embody God's love. If you'd like to make a donation, you can do so on our website at www.kindrednc.church. Just select Give. You can find lots of ways to connect with our community on our website as well as on our social media pages. Thanks again for listening, and we will catch you next time.